0: You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 10th of May 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Where in the world is US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and what is he doing there? My guests Thomas Lewis, Paige Reynolds, and Peter Firth will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the United States' strangely urgent quest to open a consulate in Greenland, the country where, if the politics is making you sick, the Prime Minister can probably cure you, and you you are Let that be a warning to whimsical craft brewers seeking to appropriate the Guns N' Roses trademark. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocle's Peter Firth, Monocle 24's Paige Reynolds, and joining us from our Toronto Bureau, our Bureau Chief, Thomas Lewis. Welcome all, and we will begin with the recent and future peregrinations, round of applause there for the word peregrinations please, no, okay, I I try, of US Secretary (laughs) of State Mike Pompeo. As we have been chronicling on Monocle 24 this week, Pompeo has been racking up the air miles, visiting the Arctic Council Summit, of which more shortly in Finland, stand up Germany to drop in on Baghdad and passing through London. His next stop is Russia, where US secretaries of state are rarely short of material for conversation. Pompeo will meet President Vladimir Putin and Foreign Minister Sergey Lavrov in Sochi. Um, Paige, it is hard to know where to start, obviously, but w- what is likely to be top of the agenda?
1: Well, I mean, I think in sort of a classic political style, uh, what has been said is that they will discuss the full range of bilateral and multilateral challenges. Oh, they always say that. <laughs> Ha, <laughs> ha, but um, I think when we're being realistic, I think uh, there's going to be quite a few big topics on the agenda. Um, of course, this is the first time uh, that a high-level uh, US official will be in Russia since the Phil Mueller report has been released. So it'll be interesting to see whether that kind of changes how the dialogue um, continues. But there's been a lot of friction with um, Venezuela in particular. I think that's going to be quite a big sticking point. Um, of course, they're on complete opposing sides there. Um, The Trump administration has kind of gone into this proxy battle with Russia over Venezuela. Um, Mike Pompeo threatened military action and accused Russia of persuading Maduro to cling to office. Um, Very recently, um, Russia in turn has said, uh, you know, Pompeo is spreading fake news. um, It's an information war. And I think, you know, this is going to be one of the big sticking points. I think North Korea is also going to be on the agenda. Of course, we had... um, Putin and the North Korean leader meeting in Vladivostok as well quite recently. So I think perhaps Pompeo is going to want to sort of hear a little bit more in depth about what happened there, where we're going to go with um, North Korea and denuclearization, and perhaps also Ukraine. So they're not short for topics, they Andrew. Are,
0: they are not. Peter, on that subject, though, do we imagine or perhaps even hope uh, that Mike Pompeo might have a slightly different line
2: on russia than his boss does well the thing that i loved about this meeting was the fact that um in the lead-up the kremlin basically said that pompeo would meet lavrov definitely and maybe putin depending on how the talks went so basically i'm imagining it as a sort of diplomatic video game where kind of wheedling past your 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 way past lavrov will take you to a sort of (laughs) shirtless putin boss level where
0: i'm now imagining putin astride a big erection of scaffolding hurling barrels at, at Mike Pompeo, <laughs> who is having to leap over them.
2: Exactly. and, and but, but I think just sort of announcing it in that way in the run up, I think does a lot for Putin's optics ahead of the meeting, because he can deign to meet, you know, by the by the stroke of his hand, uh, he can either meet Pompeo or he or he can't. Yeah, or and, won't.
1: and actually interesting on that, I was sort of having a quick browse through, through the Russian press and how they were um, presenting this meeting. And both Dmitry Peskov, which is obviously the spokesperson for the Kremlin and Russian press, have said that this, this dialogue has resumed at the initiative of the American side. And they've been very uh, keen to point out that it's the US that really wants relations back and that Russia's just, you know, kind of saying, OK, well, if you want to chat.
0: And um, to bring in at this point, the disembodied voice of Thomas Lewis from our Toronto Bureau, uh, Thomas, as Paige mentioned, Venezuela is likely to come up as a subject. But how much is, is this a a bluff versus counter bluff? Does either Russia or the United States really want to get involved in Venezuela in any serious way? Well, I think, you know, for Russia, it would
3: probably be a bit of a situation of, well, well, why not get involved? You know, the big sort of Western players are going on one side of the the story, if you like. And it, over the past few years, has pretty staunchly gone on the the other side. When you look at things like um, Syria, I think this meeting with the North Korean leader uh, recently in Vladivostok, as Paige mentioned, is also another sign of that in my mind. I think, you know, by sending Mike Pompeo to Moscow, I think... I think it's kind of interesting. I think to me it reads as a bit of an admission on the part of the Trump administration that, you know, the, the showiness and the flashiness of having these big sort of summits and press conferences with these unlikely world leaders that have, you know, shown their antagonism in lots of different ways to the United States actually really only go so far and have actually gone to undermine things that President Donald Trump has wanted to say and has wanted to express about the way he is sort of leading American diplomacy on the world stage. I think for me, what will be interesting is that, you know, if you look at the meetings Donald Trump has had, it's about what he hasn't brought up that has been the big story. And I just wonder whether by sending Pompeo, they're trying to give the message that, you know, someone like Mike Pompeo does have the teeth to say, look, you meddled in our election. You can't do this again. You can't sort of, you know, control or pull all the strings in Syria or in Venezuela. You know, you have to sort of meet us eye to eye on this. And I just wonder um, exactly what will play out, whether kind of Mike Pompeo will be able to sort of, you know, be a bit more open bust towards um the russians than than donald trump himself has been able to be
0: page just as a final thought on this one and we are we are again in the realm of do we imagine or at least hope that russia regards mike pompeo as a perhaps more serious and substantial interlocutor than they do mike pompeo's boss
1: yeah perhaps I think Pompeo's of course come across a a lot, a lot more hawkish and he's definitely been very outspoken um you know often calling Russia uh, very provocative in its in its actions in in the international sphere um you know he also spends a lot less time saying stupid things on Twitter which is which is always good um I think on the Russian side of things their interactions are always completely transactional so if we are going to look at something like you know Venezuela I I don't think it's un, you know completely um, uh, unheard of that they might sort of give up their position there, but they're going to be wanting something in return. Um, they're co- probably going to be wanting something like, you know, the withdrawal of US military assistance to Ukraine. Um, kind of interestingly, I, I was reading the Moscow Times and uh, political analyst Vladimir Frolov uh, wrote uh, Moscow is ready to sell its stake in Maduro, but it's still unclear whether Washington is ready to offer the right price. So, with all these relations, you kind of got to just way up that Russia wants something big in return.
0: OK, well, let's move along somewhat. Uh, as mentioned earlier, Mike Pompeo did visit the Arctic Council Forum in Rovaniemi, where he baffled many other delegates by giving a speech marvelling at the new trade routes which might be opened up by a large-scale melting of polar ice. Pompeo did, however, cancel a scheduled visit to the Greenlandic capital of Nuuk, where the US has signalled an intention to open a permanent diplomatic presence. This may seem a curious priority for a country which currently has no ambassador in such irrelevant backwaters as turkey saudi arabia australia egypt pakistan and mexico um thomas before we get on to the curious priorities of the department of state the arctic council you've actually been uh, to one of these wingdings what do they talk about
3: well, they talk about lots of things. I went to the summit when it was last held in Canada. That was back in 2015, and that was um, hosted in Iqaluit, which is one of the, the biggest cities in Canada's Arctic North. I think the, um, the atmosphere during that meeting was one of sort of diplomatic niceties, but also a sort of a bit of a reality check about what the sort of changing landscape in lots of ways in the Arctic meant. You still have these kind of power plays that are unfolding, you know, China, Russia, other slightly more unlikely kind of national players want a piece of the Arctic pie, if you like. But I think back in 2015, there was a realisation that this melting of the ice and this opening up of new trade routes that Mike Pompeo trumpeted so uh, triumphantly this week, actually, you know, wasn't this kind of free for all uh, that you might have expected that lots of companies had tried and failed to sort of get access to the natural resources that were once hidden beneath beneath the ice and that actually even though this ice is sort of receding that actually it is still a pretty challenging landscape um, in which to extract things from so I think you know the fact that Mike Pompeo decided to use that as the US's big sort of rallying cry this year will strike many as being a bit of a you know a bit divorced from rea- reality really given that even in the say four years or so since the summit <clears throat> excuse me I reported from you know that that that's, the challenges haven't really gone away and that they haven't actually been overcome in a very very great way so I think in terms of the shock waves that this kind of ebullience from the Americans will have sent through the Arctic Council, I think will have quite tangible effects, given that it has been quite a quiet, steady and quite a rare forum in which lots of jostling and contrasting voices have traditionally found common ground.
0: Uh, Peter, I, I did some actual research before we came on <laughs> air. Uh, this is a first time for everything. Uh, <laughs> and I discovered that there are, a, there are some countries which do maintain consulates in Greenland as the United States is proposing to to do uh, among them are some fairly obvious ones: Iceland, Canada, Finland, uh, also Germany, UK, and the Czech Republic. Bit of a stretch. South Korea has a consulate in Greenland. What? I, I'm I'm starting to wonder if that's one of those things where. Someone's having a lend of the South Korean foreign ministry there, mm-hmm. aren't they? So, somebody has made this pitch to the South Korean foreign ministry to go, yeah, mm, lots of vital South Korean interest in Greenland. You should totally pay me an ambassador's wage and, and send me there. Probably <laughs> won't spend all that much time there. The phones are a bit rickety, so maybe I'll do the job from, I don't know, Mallorca. But, but you know, I think. But, but we would have a representative there. <laughs> I mean, would you like to be stationed in Greenland? I've never been. It may, it may well be delightful. I can imagine the winters being a bit of a struggle, and I can also imagine the winters lasting for about
2: 11 and a half months. But as consular duties go, um, it might actually prove to be quite tricky with everybody just rushing in there in this kind of resources grab for the Arctic. I mean, when um, Pompeo made his, made his address at the Arctic Council, he said uh, there are only Arctic states... And there are non Arctic states. No third category exists, and claiming otherwise entitles China to exactly nothing.
0: Yeah, he was having a poke there at China. Isn't China trying to claim that it's sub Arctic or Arctic adjacent, or I can't believe it's not Arctic, or, or, or something <laughs> exactly. o- of that ilk?
2: Belt and Arctic <laughs> campaign. Um,
0: I, I'm still intrigued by what the. the diplomatic representative to Greenland would do all day I am intrigued Paige by those diplomatic representatives who just end up in places where you you just think exactly that I think quite early on if memory serves me correctly quite early on in Monocle magazine series on meeting the ambassadors we did one on Cuba's ambassador to New Zealand And, and, and again how are you filling your week up
1: Well, I'm I'm really not sure. In terms of of Greenland, I was sort of just trying to get a bit of a sort of country profile going. Um, It's 57,000 people, not a lot.
0: About the size of Walton-on-Thames. Yeah,
1: 15,000 in the capital, which I presume is where you're going to want to be based, because, again, there's not a lot going on. (laughs) Unless, of course, you want to kind of experience the Inuit lifestyle a bit, maybe kind of, I don't know, go whale fishing, kind of camp out. Um, There's no daily newspapers, I also found out. Um, so you're kind of going to want good internet connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and Greenland enjoys perpetual daylight for two months each year. But so, per- but perpetual darkness for ten. I was sort of trying the- to look at the, <laughs> at the bright side, as it were.
0: Literally.
2: <laughs> the question is, what would be more maddening? Would it, would it be the perpetual light or the perpetual dark?
0: I well see. I've mm. I've been I've been in Iceland in high summer when it never gets dark and it's just weird because everyone's in a state of permanent jet lag derangement. You keep falling asleep in the middle of the afternoon and waking up at three o'clock in the morning. And there are few feelings worse than leaving a dark, dingy, noisy club at two o'clock in the morning and walking out into blazing sunshine. It's in, it's incredibly mm. disorienting and unpleasant.
1: Um, really quickly, when I was sort of looking at the um, US. Uh, Greenland relationship I didn't know that um, and there, in, there, there, in, there, there, are, there is which, some scholarship by, on by it By
0: definition you are almost <laughs> certainly now the world's leading expert
1: <laughs> One Google search um, In 1946 the US actually tried to buy the entire island from Denmark for 100 million dollars Didn't succeed but there you go 100 million bucks and Denmark wouldn't sell it. I know, I know.
2: Was that the kind of thing where you you turn up on the Golden Gate Bridge and somebody offers to (laughs) sell it to you for $20? Uh, I, I do know
0: for well, a fact then, that, that there was, we are deviating somewhat from the topic. There was a legendary con-, con man, Victor Lustig. I think I'm remembering the right one. He sold the Eiffel Tower to somebody in France. And upon realising that the guy he'd sold the Eiffel Tower to was too embarrassed about being deceived to call the gendarmes, he then just sold it again to somebody else. Um, Peter, <laughs> I do want to look at this question of the missing US ambassadors and to some of them to not unimportant postings, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Pakistan and Mexico, and, and even my own homeland of... Australia, though I can see that we don't really cause America that much trouble. Um, it's the evergreen question where the Trump administration is concerned: is this malice or incompetence?
2: I think it actually comes down to an, an inward-looking America. You know, you've you've got a you've got um, a leader who campaigned on America first, on paring back on its diplomatic um, duties of being the world policeman. Um, and I think actually whenever you get a populist kind of strongman who is focusing on playing to the home crowd, they're going to pair back when it comes to that kind of stuff. We're seeing now with uh, Herr, um, Bolsonaro um, in in Brazil, we're seeing a similar pattern where effectively he's also foregoing a lot of his diplomatic duties around the world um, in order to focus on, on home voters
0: okay we are going to take a short break now you're listening to midori house with me andrew Muller, along with Paige reynolds thomas lewis and peter firth coming up next should national leaders be encouraged to moonlight rome boasts an ancient specialization in restoring the masterpieces of the past but thanks to innovative technology the works of rome's art restorers is also very current Monaco Films traveled to the Eternal City to visit restoration studio Merlini Storti. The founders of the all-women team were trained by the former chief restorer at Vatican Museums, Maurizio De Luca.
3: We can understand how restoration has always been present and how, from the historical background, schools of restoration were founded that have formed a generation of restorers who currently are considered the best
0: in the world. The Art of Restoration, playing now in the film section at
2: monocle.com.
0: You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Peter Firth, Paige Reynolds and Thomas Lewis. Now, it is a common complaint of citizens of democracies that many of their elected representatives don't appear to believe that they have enough responsibilities or just possibly enough money and therefore pursue parallel careers while serving in office. But what if they're doing something actually useful with their spare time? This week we learned that Lotte Shering, the Prime Minister of Bhutan, relaxes over a weekend by performing surgery. And just so we're clear on this. He was a surgeon before going into politics. This isn't just a thing he's decided he can do because he's Prime Minister. Uh, Paige, as a general rule however, should politicians forswear all other employment and just work for the people who are paying their wages, i.e. we, the citizens?
1: I mean, yes, in, in an ideal world, that that would be how it would go, particularly, as you said, that we would be paying said wages. Uh, but it's not the case, really, is it? That we um, live in an
0: ideal world. No, <laughs> well, no, no, Paige, regrettably, it is not. Gosh, uh, <laughs>
1: big news on the Dory House. No, I, I mean, that you know, we... we Coming we, up tonight, we, we the all... <laughs> world, not ideal. <laughs> no, we, we all know that, particularly in the UK, uh, there are, I, you know, Many, many MPs who declare additional employment. Um, A couple of uh, MPs, particularly uh, Gordon Brown, apparently recorded payments totalling uh, £533,000 in 2014 in in the space of only uh, four months. And um, lest we forget the political storm that followed uh, the appointment of former Chancellor George Osborne as editor of the Evening Standard. And apparently he actually had nine jobs. Which I've also learnt. Yeah, he had
0: uh, very he, he had many other jobs while being Chancellor of the Exchequer of the United Kingdom, which I would have assumed would have been a fairly time consuming gig, as these things go. Um, Thomas, is this a subject that causes frequent teeth gnashing and garment rending in Canada?
3: Um, Not particularly, I don't think. But I think if you look at the United States, over the last few years, there's been a bit of an attempt to, you know, make a bit of political capital, I guess, out of this. Jill Biden, who is the wife of Joe Biden, uh, a candidate for the Democratic nomination for president, of course, who served as vice president to Barack Obama during his two terms in office, she became the first um, second lady to maintain and to keep her full-time job while she was doing her official duties um, as second lady. She was an English teacher um, at a community college in northern Virginia. I think that was sort of trumpeted pretty strongly at the time, as showing that she, you know, as well as being a public face and being a public servant in that context, that actually doing ground, you know, doing work, excuse me, on the ground in terms of the skill set that she had was also something very, you know, pr but also something that was very important too. I think it's uh, interesting to note, of course, that her successor, Karen Pence, the, the, the wife of the, the vice president of the moment, Mike Pence, has also recently taken up a job as a teacher. Uh, but she's also trying, it seems, to make a political point of her own. She has got a job at a school where <clears throat> LGBT students and staff are actively banned from uh, being admitted into that school. That created a huge uh, story at the start of the year when that emerged in the United States. So I suppose, you know, if you have a job that maybe isn't as sort of grueling as, say, a first lady or president, you know, of a huge country like the United States, perhaps it is a good opportunity to show that, you know, you can have lots of strings to your bow and you can be serving the country in sort of big, broad brush brush strokes, but also in a sort of more localised way as well.
0: Uh, Peter, is it ever to be encouraged? Are there some of which we can approve? I would like to give a shout out at this point to Alfred Deakin, who was Prime Minister of Australia three times in the early part of the 20th century. For quite a lot of that period, he also worked as the resident political commentator on Australian politics for the London Morning (laughs) Post, uh, writing under a pseudonym. The glorious part about it was he was frequently
2: very critical (laughs) of himself. Well, fantastic. I mean, that's... As, as any right-thinking journalist ought to be.
0: Indeed. Um, also, though it's not an elected position, we sh- again, another
2: shout-out to King Willem-Alexander of the Netherlands who flies <laughs> Boeing 737s for KLM. Oh, or actually, as we're about to get onto hard rock as well... Um, the lead singer of Iron Maiden, who also is a pilot,
0: he flies Iron Maiden's own plane. He is, however, not actually an, an elected
2: representative, unless you count the acclaim of Iron Maiden's many fans, which we do. Um, so, <laughs> I think there—I mean, there are some jobs that you wouldn't want your politicians doing, aren't there? Really? Serial killer. Serial killer. Go-go dancer. Injury lawyer, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there are, there, are, there are quite a few. <laughs> which...
0: how, how have you come to bracket serial killer go-go dancer and injury lawyer on the, on the same... Any yeah. injury lawyers listening, that, well, is, exactly. that, is, that is Peter Firth.
2: That's, yes, that's right. Um, so, I mean, I think that's, that sometimes, as Thomas was, was saying, that these extra careers do something in order to enshrine the, these leaders as being a competent person, because their careers in politics don't always carry that out. Well, indeed. Um, so, I, I mean, one, one example I, I came across um, face-to-face, actually, was last spring I was reporting a story for uh, Monocle Spring newspapers, and I went to Cannes to go and meet the mayor there, a chap named Dr. Frank Chickley. And Dr. Dr. Frank Chickley had basically been um, uh, instrumental to the running of the city and basically stepping up its resilience and security measures following all the terror attacks which happened in Nice just up the coast. Um, and he also is a radiologist um, at the Centre Hospitalier de Cannes, and there was something about the, the mannerism that he had, it was very doctorly, and I think that sometimes these kinds of things can then spread into your career as a politician, because actually, when, it, when it's all said and done, there's a bit of a distaste and a bit of a loathing, I think, for career politicians.
0: See, I've never, I've never understood that. The, the, the same people who complain about the idea of professional politicians, you never see trusting their dentistry to an enthusiastic amateur. <laughs> I, I, I don't really understand why we shouldn't be governed by people who have been trained and schooled and practiced in governance and who should therefore concentrate on that because that's what we're paying them to do.
1: But I suppose that, you know, uh, policy encapsulates a lot of other things. It's not really a a, a one trick. You know, you talk about governance, but you learn governance through, you know, interacting with people from, you know, varied backgrounds in in different sort of parts of the country and not just kind of at Eton and then at Oxford and then in the House of Parliament, which seems to be the case sometimes.
2: You're such an elitist, Andrew. (laughs) (coughs) I do my best. Uh,
0: finally, tonight, however, in their first useful contribution to the greater good since Appetite for Destruction, Guns N' Roses have struck what will hopefully prove a resonant blow against inane, whimsical punsmithery. The group have instructed their learned friends to have a word with a Colorado brewery which has taken to market a craft beer called Guns N' Rose, a joke which can only be the work of people who have failed to understand that a pun only functions when it has a self contained logic, as opposed to merely being being a deployment of words that sound a bit like other words. Guns and Roses argue not implausibly that the passing consumer may assume that there is some sort of official endorsement or linkage. And see, as an example of what I mean, and I hat off to Tom Hall, producer of this episode, for coming up with the pun sweet mild of mine, which would be a great pun for a beer if Guns and Roses actually were selling it. See, that's funny. There's a self-contained logic. It is Guns and Roses who have a song called Sweet. You know how this works. It's, a you know, it's a good joke. This, however, is not a good joke. And actually, while we're shouting out to Tom Hall, we do need to mention the script uh, for today's episode, which he, which he has decorated with images of Guns and Roses assigned to each of us. I, am, <laughs> I appear on the script as Axel Rose, as, as befits, obviously, a, a deranged, tyrannical prima donna. Uh, Paige, you are slash... Absolutely. The, the flashy lead guitarist. I've interviewed Let me just, him. Let me, I've, I've let inter- me just Google him. I, 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 <laughs> I have interviewed Slash. Nice fellow. He's very okay. keen, very keen okay. on snakes. Great. Um, Peter Firth, you are Duff
2: McKagan. I don't want to be Duff McKagan. Well, who do you
0: want to be? <laughs> I want to be Slash. Well, you can't. Page is Slash. It's it's in the script. Do you want to swap? I'm uh, Saul Hudson. And, and and Thomas, though, you can't see the script where you're sitting. I think you're Buckethead.
3: Oh, great. Two peas in <laughs> <my> pod. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs>
1: um,
0: but... We should move on to the subject actually at hand, which is this lamely named beer. Um, it, it doesn't work, does it? It's not funny. Are Guns N' Roses within their rights to take action on this? Thomas, I will put this to you. Can, should Guns N' Roses actually make the case that we're not all that upset by trademark infringement? This is just a bad joke.
3: Oh, I just think they're sort of being a bit po faced about this, aren't they? I mean, you know the, the would, makers would of this. You you not,
0: would you not assume, upon spying a beer called Guns and Rose, that they had some linkage to it?
3: I don't think I would, actually. Am I, am I just being totally naive and living in well, sort of a ro- rosé kind of I don't know, but if, here, if
0: Guns N' Roses lawyers are listening to this, they're starting to get real worried. <laughs> 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 they, you won't be on the jury, Thomas, I can tell you. <laughs> no, absolutely <laughs> not.
2: I, I have it on good authority that Guns N' Roses were actually planning to unveil a rosé of a similar name. Just months. Really? Before, yeah. yeah but the, the plot does thicken. Because no, no, the thing that, is, the thing is a,
0: a, ACDC do actually have a way, range of wines, and to return to my original point, if ACDC released a rosé and called it Whole Lot of Rosé, <laughs> that would be funny, because that pun has a self-contained logic. Do you see how this works? People at Colorado Brewery, whose name I can't tell anybody, because I haven't put it in the script.
1: When I was... Um Reading this story earlier, it reminded me of a of a story I think that broke, as it were, uh, in uh, late 2017, of a certain uh, lemonade, a Polish lemonade um, that Yoko Ono was quite oh, upset about. Dear Lord. Um, the <clears throat> lemonade in question, a kind of one of those cool craft lemonades that's, you know, um, terribly expensive, um, was called uh, John Lemon. And and when you think about it, you think, oh, it's not you know, it's not terrible. I mean, it, it, John Lemon. John is a very normal name, and lemon's just the name of the fruit, right? <laughs> but it's. And, but and but then when you look at the so they denied all wrongdoing, the online image uh, that they'd used to promote John Lemon was, a picture of John Lennon grasping a lemon tree. I mean. Pretty, pretty obvious that there's some connection there. So, uh, Yoko actually sent legal letters to the Polish drinks firm um, threatening uh, f- uh, fines of £4,500 a day for hijacking John's image. But I'm just sad it wasn't called Leninade.
0: Ah, see, um. they, 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 again... <laughs> Such a disappointed sight from but they, that That is an open goal missed. Right <laughs> I know. There, there I are know. a great many artists that do have um, <laughs> lagers or beers of their own. Among them, um, I've looked all this up, uh, Kid Rock. Iron Maiden and Pearl Jam. Motorhead's is called Bastard's Lager. Bastard's Lager? Yeah, which which isn't... See, I'd, I'd buy something called Bastard's Lager. I wonder Especially
2: the, if the umlauts were over the A's. I wonder how boozy that was, because Lenny's... Uh, sorry, Lemmy. God, crikey. Lemmy's favourite drink was um, Jack and Coke, wasn't it? He was he was famous for inhabiting that single bar in, um, in LA and just spending all afternoon there.
1: And you know the the Hanson does everyone remember the Hanson brothers? We yeah.
0: did they did a session
2: here once,
1: of did course they? We remember Hanson. Okay, so everyone knows what their most famous song is.
0: Yep, and I'm already seeing where this is going. You,
1: and they genuinely have a craft <laughs> beer named mm, hops.
0: that does bring us probably mercifully to the end of today's show Paige Reynolds Thomas Lewis and Peter Firth thank you for joining us at Midori House the show was produced by Tom Hall researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Rory Goodrick our studio manager was David Stevens music next at 1900 it's the menu with Marcus Sippy. there's more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200 Midori House returns on Monday 1800 London time I'm Andrew Muller have a great weekend